The stage, the town of Alton in southern Illinois. The date of the act committed, the 7th of November, 1837. On that Tuesday, an angry mob murdered Elijah Lovejoy, the Presbyterian minister who was the founder of the Illinois State Anti-Slave Society. Two days later, some 500 miles east in Hudson, Ohio, a church congregation held a memorial service to honor the murdered activist. Owen Brown opened the gathering with a long, tearful prayer. At its conclusion, there was a long silence. Then, in the back, Owen Brown's son rose and stiffly raised his right hand, then vowed, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. It was 37-year-old John Brown's first public statement on the inflammatory issue, and as time would tell, his message and actions would be ominous. And yet, on that Tuesday and in that service, this was John Brown of Hudson, Ohio. It would take time and events to fully create the John Brown of bleeding Kansas and Harper's Ferry. From Crusader to Old Testament Avenging Angel, this is his story. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. He was born on a Friday, May 9th, 1800, only five months after George Washington's death. Born in Torrington, Connecticut to Owen and Ruth Brown, he was the fourth of eight. At five years of age, his father, a successful tanner, cattle breeder, and land speculator, moved his family to Hudson, Ohio. Staunch opponents to slavery, the Brown home was a haven for fugitive slaves. John Brown idolized his father and longed for more of his father's time. Unable to give it, Owen Brown's son grew up insecure. That would have consequences down the road. He lost his precious mother in December of 1808 while she was in childbirth. She was 37. He was eight. Devastated, his father threw himself into work and was so successful that he set up a second tannery and chose his teenage son and a foster brother to run it. Things went well, and around the age of 19, John Brown had set aside enough money to build a home, and in the spring of 1819, his house gave shelter to its first fugitive slaves. That same year, an experience that shaped his destiny. One night, while sheltering a fugitive slave, he heard strange voices just outside. The fugitive feared slave catchers and panicked. Jumping from a table, he left a saucer of milk and imprints of his fingers on uneaten bread as he dove out a window in the back of the cabin. When the voices moved on, Brown went to find him. Unable to see him, Brown was able to locate the fugitive by the sound of his pounding heart. Behind a woodpile, John Brown found the runaway petrified with fear. He never forgot the moment. And then another incident, this one at a U.S. military outpost near the Great Lakes. After driving one of his father's cattle herds to that site, he lingered for a week with a U.S. marshal. There, Brown met and befriended the marshal's Negro-serving boy. Though young, Brown remembered the black lad's generosity, aptitude, agility, and fortitude. One night, his young friend angered the marshal, and in horror, 
Brown watched the white men grab an iron shovel from the fireplace and use it to beat the black boy. Another memory seared into his consciousness. And yet, those horrific memories would take years to manifest, for at 19 or 20 years of age, there were business endeavors and distractions in life. One was falling in love. He married Dianth Lusk in June of 1820. She would bear him seven children. Thirteen more would follow, but with a second wife. When he and Mary Ann Day wed, he was 33, she 17. Yes, he fathered 20 children, but 12 would die from illness, accident, or violence. By the time John Brown was 28, he was a businessman and civic leader in a community just east of Meadville, Pennsylvania. Though successful, he was restless. While he continued to provide safe haven for countless fugitive slaves, he believed he could do far more. That firm resolve was apparent in the way he raised his family. Once, after a series of repeated offenses, Brown decided he must discipline his eldest, John Jr. The punishment? Twenty-five lashes with a long, blue beach switch. Is a reckoning justified then, John? His father asked, and his son answered, Yes, father. After eight strikes, the lashing ceased. John Jr. turned to find his father bearing his own back. Seventeen more lashes are due, John, and I will take them myself. I am your father, and it is on me that blame must fall for failing to teach you your duties. The son protested, but commanded to do so, he lightly struck his father's bared back, only to hear, Harder! Harder! Amidst beads of blood, the 17 were applied. Years later, 60-year-old John Jr. volunteered, Nothing could ever persuade me that my father could possibly do anything wrong. Life with his wife Mary was good, but his restlessness was the motivation for several relocations and different jobs. At 35, John Brown thought himself little more than a day laborer. Despite this feeling, he and his family persevered and maintained their moral convictions. That was evident when during an afternoon session at an interdenominational revival, Brown and his family listened to a minister quote from the Bible, Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Later, at an evening session, John Brown gave the message practical application. The Browns sat near the front. Free blacks in attendance sat in the rear. Brown rose, and in his high, flat, metallic voice announced, A discrimination has been made, an unchristian discrimination. Our colored neighbors and fellow worshipers have been made to sit at the back of this meeting house, scarcely within sight or hearing of the preaching of the Word of God. The minister and congregation were hushed. Then, with a hint of sarcasm, Brown repeated, Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. He then turned to his family. Come with me, children, Mary. And they moved for the exit. Near the door, Brown whispered to one of the blacks. As one, they rose and took the seats formerly occupied by the Brown family. John, Mary, and their seven children then took the vacated seats. One night back at home, he was reading a passage from the book of Job. I was the father to the poor, and the cause for which I knew not I searched out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. The passage spurred anger for he thought himself a failure for how he thus far had lived his life. To his family, 
He spoke of the diabolical, cowardly, and human evil of slavery and was convinced that political debate would never end the institution, only force. And yet, by June of 1840, immediate reality again took precedence. That month, things were so bad that Brown had to auction off his farm, furniture, implements, and livestock. Declaring bankruptcy, he was even incarcerated for a time in an Akron, Ohio jail. And then personal tragedy. In the space of 21 days, he lost three of his children to dysentery. Desperate, he turned to shepherding. Things did brighten in 1845 when he was recognized as one of the country's most successful breeders of sheep and an authority on the cleaning and grading of wool. Those skills led to travel to New England, to southwestern Pennsylvania, and to western Virginia. On each trip, he made contact with black communities and anti-slavery men. In Springfield, Massachusetts, he met and employed a 29-year-old freedman by the interesting name of Thomas Thomas. To him, Brown laid out his plan to break slavery. The deployment of small armed bands throughout the Virginia Appalachians, which would stage lightning raids to liberate slaves on plantations and then guide them northward. Soon thereafter, he explained that plan to another avid listener, Frederick Douglass. But then, another dose of harsh reality when on November the 7th, 1846, word arrived that his 17-year-old daughter, Ruth, who, while doing chores, accidentally spilled boiling water onto her baby sister, Amelia, who was playing just beneath her. Amelia died. Though racked with pain over the loss of yet another child, he began to contact several wealthy and influential men in the Northeast who had abolitionist sentiments. One was Garrett Smith, who owned 120,000 acres of land in northernmost New York. Brown visited with him, and when told he would assist in Smith's plan to create and sustain several self-sufficient black farming communities, Smith sold Brown a 244-acre tract, some three miles from Lake Placid. So the family prepared for yet another move, one made more difficult by the loss, incredibly, of yet another child. This time it was 11-month-old Ellen, who died of tuberculosis. She, the eighth child taken from him. And then, more trouble. First, a moral punch to his gut. On the 18th of September, 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law took effect. No runaway could now be safe as he or she made their escape northward. The second, personal. The twelfth child Mary bore him died a month after its birth, a victim of whooping cough. The ninth child of his to die. Despite the personal, financial, and moral blows, Brown continued to harbor and transport fugitives from Kentucky into Ohio and from Ohio to Michigan and Canada. In May of 1854, a lightning bolt from Washington City. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed by Congress, and its adoption was a catalyst for many anti-slave people to finally act. One of those was Massachusetts entrepreneur Eli Thayer, who, very aware there was potential for slavery now in Kansas, gathered northern capitalists and incorporated them. Calling themselves the New England Immigrant Aid Society, they made investments to develop land in the newly created Kansas Territory. Aware of the movement, John Brown Jr. persuaded members of his family, brothers Owen, Frederick, Salmon, Watson, and Jason, to relocate to Kansas with him. They hoped for a new start and for a chance to block the spread of slavery. John Brown Sr. was invited, but at this time declined. By spring of 1855, all six Brown boys had staked claims. 
They put up tents at a site where Potawatomi Creek flowed into the Osage River, 35 miles south of Lawrence, Kansas. Greeted by a group of Missourians who wanted to know if the immigrants were, as they put it, sound on the goose, John Jr. boldly answered, We are free state, and more than that, we are abolitionists. From that moment on, they were marked for destruction. On the 20th of May, 1855, John Brown Jr. wrote to his father that the Missourians were armed to the teeth when he talked to some of his wealthy friends to see if funds might be raised to buy weapons. The letter was one month old when his father, now in North Elba, New York, received it. With letter in hand, his wife Mary knew that despite 22 years of marriage, birthing 13 children, and after 11 moves, her husband would soon leave again. Within a week, he, son Oliver, and son-in-law Henry Thompson were headed west. On the way, Brown received $60 from Garrett Smith. In Chicago, they bought a wagon and horse for $120. They loaded it with rifles, revolvers, knives, and from Army surplus, short Thick, straight-bladed broadswords, complete with ornamental eagles on the blade. They passed through Iowa, and at Brunswick, Missouri, they reached the Missouri River. As they waited for a ferry from the north bank, an old man approached. Where are you going? Brown answered, Kansas. Where are you from? Brown said, New York. The Missourian looked the three over and offered... You won't live to get there. Brown coldly answered, We are prepared not to die alone. Arriving in Osawatomie, Kansas on Sunday, October the 7th, 1855, they met up with their kin. And soon thereafter, 11 Browns were holed up in two shanties. They called their corner of the universe Brown Station. Around them, Kansas was in turmoil. There were two state governments, one pro-slave, one anti-slave, and both believed their legislature legitimate. Intimidation, fear, and violence reigned. Around Osawatomie, a 20-man militia was formed. They called themselves the Liberty Guards, and they elected Brown as their captain. All that was needed was a spark and Territorial Chief Justice Samuel LeCompte provided it in the spring of 1856. The pro-slave official handed down an indictment for the arrest of several citizens in anti-slave Lawrence and called for the suppression of two anti-slave newspapers. Federal Marshal I.B. Donaldson was ordered to go there. Fully aware of the potential for trouble, he asked for citizen deputies. Many he recruited were not from Kansas, but slave-holding Missouri border ruffians, and they were itching to ride into anti-slave Lawrence. On the morning of Wednesday, May the 21st, 1856, the 800- to 1,000-man posse rode out. With them, banners that read, Southern Rights and Supremacy of the White Race. Alerted of their approach, the indicted in Lawrence got out of town. Unable to locate them, Marshal Donaldson and his party left Lawrence, but on its outskirts, pro-slave Sheriff Samuel J. Jones waited for the U.S. Marshal to leave, and then he approached the lingering posse, and he seized control. Determined that they were going back into Lawrence to exact their brand of justice, the group was addressed by the former United States Senator from Missouri and former President Pro Tempor of the U.S. Senate, David Atchison. And he said, I want you to be brave, be orderly. But if a man, woman, or child stand in your way, blast them to hell with a chunk of cold lead. And so encouraged, the incited mob rode back into town and sacked Lawrence. Along with the shooting and looting, 
The two anti-slave presses and their type were dumped in the Kansas River. The Free State Hotel, which doubled as a fort, was shelled, then blasted by detonated powder kegs and burned. Lawrence smoldered. By the time the alerted men of the Brown family arrived on the scene, the posse was gone. Word was that five men had been killed. An enraged John Brown began to plan for Old Testament justice. Indeed, one of his favorite verses in the good book was Hebrews 9, 22nd verse, and it would serve as justification for what he knew he must do. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. For what he wanted to do, his sons Owen, Frederick, Salmon, and Oliver, son-in-law Henry Thompson, and a neighbor, Theodore Weiner, volunteered. John Jr. and Jason opted to stay behind. The plan was to, under the cover of darkness, move to a pro-slave settlement along Pottawatomie Creek. Six miles from Brown Station, three families that had had previous run-ins with the Browns were targeted. The Doyles, the Wilkinsons, and the Shermans. Again in Lawrence, the word was that five had died. On Saturday the 24th of May, 1856, John Brown meant to exact eye-for-an-eye justice along the banks of Pottawatomie. By nightfall, the eight men were in position. Just after 10 p.m., they left their wooded cover, and out into the open, they moved in three groups. One was 200 yards short of the Doyle cabin, one just beyond. John Brown led the third, and with sons Oliver, Salmon, and Owen, they approached the cabin. As they drew near, the Doyle's two dogs began to bark and growl. With a slash of one broadsword, Frederick Brown struck one down, and a second slash wounded the other and sent it fleeing. With all the noise, all froze. Yet no one seemed to stir within the Doyle cabin. Before the door, John Brown knocked, and from inside, a voice demanded, What is it? Brown asked, I am looking for Mr. Wilkinson's house. Would you be so kind enough to point the way? The door opened, and when it did, Brown and his three sons pushed their way inside. Once inside, Brown announced that the Doyles were now prisoners of the Army of the North. Mahala Doyle reached for her young daughter, and simultaneously, understanding the bloody intent of their intruders, began to plead for the life of her youngest son, John, who was 14. Brown excused him, but James the father, 22-year-old son William, and 20-year-old Drury were marched outside. As they moved out into the night, Mahala wailed that she knew something like this was bound to happen. About a hundred yards away, the procession stopped. Salmon raised his broadsword and struck at James Doyle's head and neck. Owen slashed at William. When hands and arms were raised to block the blows, they were sliced. When Oliver Brown froze, Drury Doyle made a break to get away, but Salmon chased him down, and with three vicious slashes, the youngest captive's arms were cleaved from his trunk and his head opened. With Oliver in paralyzed shock and Owen fighting back tears, their father leaned over and put a bullet in James Doyle's forehead. Three lives had been claimed. Two more were required, so on they moved to the Wilkinson place. At their door, Brown again asked for directions, this time to Dutch Henry Sherman's. Alan Wilkinson answered, but behind a locked door. Though his wife was sick in bed with the measles, he was told to open, or they would break it down. The door opened. Wilkinson was forced outside, and this time, Theodore Weiner and Henry Thompson cut him down. The group now crossed Pottawatomie Creek and moved to Dutch Bill's Tavern. 
It was after midnight Sunday morning, and incredibly, the door to the tavern was unlocked, and John Brown and son Owen entered. The two were told Dutch Henry was out trying to round up cattle, that it strayed, but Dutch Bill was there. He was a welcome substitute. And taken outside, he was forced to the creek, where Thompson and Weiner opened his skull. Word was five died in Lawrence. Five were dead along Pottawatomie Creek. Vicious retribution complete and without a word spoken. The Browns kneeled along the creek and washed the blood from their swords and bodies. The only sound, Owen, who in between sobs muttered aloud, There shall be no more work such as that. Within 24 hours, the word was out and Brown and his sons were the leading suspects. Many in Ozawatomi feared bloody reprisal from Missouri border ruffians. The territorial governor of Kansas offered a $500 reward, dead or alive, for John Brown, and $100 for any with him. Something strange came out after these grisly murders. Before, there had been debate, speeches, and newspaper articles. But now there had been killings, and brutal ones at that. Abolitionist John Brown had set bloody precedent. Pro-slave ruffians who used violence now met one of their own. To some back east, Brown was thought brutal, a midnight murderer, the devil incarnate. To others, he was a patriotic Minuteman. In bleeding Kansas, Brown and his sons decided to lay low. In fact, Brown safely escorted some of his sons out of Kansas north to Iowa, but then he returned. He knew Lawrence would need protection, and on August the 29th, 1856, reprisal did come, but it was not in Lawrence. It was at Ozawatomie. When the raid came, Brown and others were stationed on the eastern edge of the town, but the attack came from the southwest. One son, who stayed on with Brown in Kansas, was Frederick, and it was he who literally walked into the advanced scouts of the raiding party. Recognizing him, they shot him through the heart. Then the main body rode in and burned Ozawatomie. To get tough and get control, a new territorial governor, John Geary, was sent to Kansas. And indeed, for a while, violence simmered. By the end of 56, Brown was back east and was not only the poorest of his life, but a national enigma. Feared and by some admired, he made use of his notoriety. On the 2nd of January, 1857, he visited the Massachusetts Kansas Committee, and there met 25-year-old author and journalist Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. Impressed by Brown's anti-slave stance, Sanborn arranged for a meeting with Unitarian reformer Theodore Parker. The meeting also included abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, industrialist George Luther Stearns, Unitarian Reverend Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe. During the gathering, Brown and Garrison politely but fiercely debated tactics. It appears Brown held some sway, for after that meeting, he was voted 200 Sharps rifles and $500 for expenses. From then on, these men who met with Brown were simply known as the Secret Six. Twenty-two days later, that same committee meeting in the Astor House in New York City, gave Brown $5,000 for organizing and drilling a military company not to exceed 100 men and earmarked for defense. Encouraged, Brown spent the next three months traveling through Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and Pennsylvania in an effort to raise more money. There was much talk, but little cash. He also swung by North Elba. He had been home only two weeks in the last 20 months. The visit home was quick. He was busy recruiting men, sending them to Tabor, Iowa, where they were being trained for an assignment. 
Then came a meeting January the 27th, 1858, with Frederick Douglass at his home in Rochester, New York. There, Brown laid out his plan for a raid into the Appalachians, to Harper's Ferry, Virginia. This visit was the first of many over the next three months with several black leaders. In mid-March, on Brown's way to Canada, he paused again in Rochester to visit with Harriet Tubman. There, he informed her of his planned raid on Harper's Ferry, and he asked for her blessing. She suggested the raid should begin on July the 4th, the beginning of a second American Revolution, if you will. Brown at this time seemed to be everywhere. There was an organizing trip to Springdale, Iowa, then north in May to Canada. And there, amidst a black community called Chatham, he held a constitutional convention which promised an egalitarian, interracial state that would be created in the Appalachians after his raid. This is also the time clean-shaven Brown grew a full and unruly beard which emerged white. There in Chatham, he publicly unveiled his plan. A series of raids on plantations, retreat to mountain fortresses, assimilate liberated slaves. Though numbers at his convention were small, its constitution was signed May the 9th, 1858, his 58th birthday. Meanwhile, a snafu that threatened the integrity of the entire plan. An Englishman, Colonel Hugh Forbes, whom Brown hired to train his raiders in Iowa, was unhappy and went to many of the secret six to demand full payment for his services. When he didn't get what he wanted, he paid a call on Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson in Washington City. The alarmed senator then contacted the secret six demanding information. Justifiably concerned, they told Brown, lay low for a while. He didn't want to, but agreed to temporarily scatter his men. However, he stayed busy. In April of 1859, Brown was back east and visited his most influential conspirator, Garrett Smith, who was worried. Brown reassured that he wanted to liberate without vindictive brutality, and with as little bloodshed as possible. As spring raced toward summer, it was time to pull his striking force together. First, as always, Brown turned to his family, but Salmon and Jason this time refused to go. John Jr. said no, but agreed to handle weapon transport and recruit additional raiders. Owen, Oliver, and Watson signed on. Using the alias Isaac Smith and Sons, the band moved south to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Only 50 miles north of Harper's Ferry, it was here weapons would be sent. After taking the train south to Harper's Ferry, Brown rented the Kennedy Farm, which was only five or six miles northeast of town. It was here they remained throughout the summer. Here, at their operational headquarters, Raiders began to drift in by twos and threes. Told to lay low, they stayed out of sight during the day. And to give legitimacy to the farm, two of the Brown women arrived. It was here, too, that Brown unveiled a new wrinkle to his plan. The capture in Harper's Ferry of the United States Armory. And this revelation brought about fierce debate. It was finally accepted, but many began to believe this raid would be their last. In the middle of August, a notable rendezvous. On the 19th, near an old quarry near Chambersburg, Brown again met Frederick Douglass. When he learned of Brown's additional objective, he argued that an attack on the federal armory would startle the nation, unite white public sentiment against the cause. Like some of Brown's raiders... Douglas believed the raid suicidal, but Brown countered he would make use of hostages. They met again the next day. Brown wanted Douglas to join them, believing his involvement would draw national attention, but Douglas refused. He later reflected, I am willing to live for the slave, 
but he is willing to die for him. Now, another threatening development. An Iowa Quaker who watched and befriended several of Brown's men while they trained in Iowa and who learned of the planned raid tried to save those men he cared about from what he believed a doomed mission. David Gue wrote James Buchanan's Secretary of War John B. Floyd, written anonymously and received August 25th, It was extremely accurate in its detail, but Floyd dismissed it as a hoax. When October rolled round, the women at the Kennedy Farm were sent north. On the 15th, three final recruits arrived, including Brown. There were 22. At a final meeting, Brown instructed his raiders not to take a life if it could be avoided. Brown gathered a copy of his provisional constitution and maps of southern states annotated with estimations of local slave populations and marked potential attack sites and mountain hideouts. He carried a rewriting, his, of the Declaration of Independence and to incriminate as many as possible a sheaf of letters from friends and sponsors. Sunday night, October the 16th, 1859, was starless, cold, damp. With three staying behind at the farm, the rest made their way for Harper's Ferry. With each, a knife, rifle, and 40 to 50 rounds of ammunition. They walked two by two. Brown sat alone on a horse-drawn wagon, which transported pikes and weapons that would be distributed to slaves who joined them. As they reached the B&O trestle just across the Potomac from Harper's Ferry, telegraph wires were cut. William Williams, the night watchman of the bridge, became their first hostage. Across the river, the raiders made the armory's sole watchman, Daniel Whelan, their second. Within minutes of their arrival, Brown and his men held the armory, the arsenal, and Hall's rifle works a half mile down Shenandoah Street. It was around midnight, and not a shot had been fired. In the countryside, influential hostages were taken, and their male slaves encouraged to join. Black females were told to spread the word. The most notable hostage, the great-great-nephew of the first president of the United States, George Washington, that hostage, Colonel Lewis Washington. Then, around 1.25 a.m., October the 17th, an unexpected development. The eastbound train to Baltimore pulled in to Harper's Ferry. Sensing something was not right, conductor A.J. Phelps stopped the train. He and baggage master Shepard Hayward went to investigate. A voice called out to them to halt, surrender. Instead, both turned and ran. Then came the first shots. Hayward went down. Ironically, the first to die in Brown's attempt to strike down slavery was a free black man employed by the B&O Railroad. Incredibly, despite the gunshots, the town continued to sleep. From 2 to 4 a.m., there was quiet. During that time, Brown and train conductor Phelps talked. Brown informed him of his mission. And it was here he made a fatal mistake. Brown agreed to let the train pass on to the east at daylight. Sure enough, from that moment, his plan began to unravel. Awaking townspeople and government workers spread the alarm once they learned that federal property had been seized. Monday brought intermittent cold rain, but when it fell, it was hard. Meanwhile, militias from nearby Shepherdstown, Martinsburg, and Charlestown mobilized around 7 a.m. A few minutes after that, our conductor Phelps train reached Monocacy Station just outside of Washington City and sent a wire to Baltimore where his report was at first discounted. At another stop, Ellicott Mills, Phelps fired off a second telegram, and this one found its way to B&O President John W. Garrett, who notified President James Buchanan. 
Meanwhile, John Brown set up his on-site headquarters inside the armory's fire engine house. Ten of the most prominent hostages were with him. Other hostages were in an adjoining room in what was called the Watch House. Brown had expected 1,500 men and freed slaves to come to his aid. Instead, maybe a few dozen. Down at Hall's Rifle Works along the Shenandoah River, increasing fire concerned the raiders, and they sent word to Brown that all should perhaps unite, cross the Potomac, and wait for help. A seemingly paralyzed Brown ignored the plea. He had to know that with the arrival of militias, fire from incensed townspeople and government workers, that his plans were being wrecked. So believed many of his men. One, Dangerfield Newby, one of five black raiders, found himself exposed. You see, he had hoped to free his own enslaved wife and children at a plantation some 30 miles away, but a militiaman fired a six-inch iron spike at him and hit him in the throat. It opened him ear to ear. Killed, his ears were severed and kept as souvenirs. Sensing disaster, Brown dispatched Raider William Thompson and a hostage to negotiate under a flag of truce. Not only ignored, both were seized, which enraged Brown. Now a second attempt, this time between acting Armory Superintendent A.M. Kitzmiller and Raiders Aaron Stevens and John Brown's son, Watson. They emerged from the fire engine house, took a few steps, and were fired upon. Stevens dropped by two lead slugs. Watson shot in the stomach. In agony, he crawled back to the engine house. Another raider, William Lehman, panicked and made a dash for the nearby Potomac, but fire pinned him down. Frozen with fear, he clung to an exposed rock. A group of townspeople walked out into the river, approached him, and one put a pistol to his head and pulled the trigger. Raiders were not the only ones cut down. West Point graduate and Harper's Ferry citizen George Turner was killed as he prepared to fire from a doorway. Harper's Ferry's Mayor Fontaine Beckham stepped out into the open for a look and was shot down. Inside the fire engine house, there was little semblance of order. And adding to the deteriorating situation, Brown's son Oliver became another casualty. On guard at the fire engine house door, he was hit in the chest by a sniper. Inside, he and his brother Watson suffered. Outside, townspeople's anger increased when they learned that Mayor Beckham had been killed. Incensed, they grabbed their hostage, Raider William Thompson, and dragged him toward the Potomac. There, they put a gun to his head, and the blast sent him over a railing and into the water below. More were hit. From inside the fire engine house, Raider Stuart Taylor cracked the door and was instantly shot. Inside the 20-square-foot room, John Brown paced like a caged tiger. Evening brought no help, no hope. All that night of the 17th, 18th, his two sons were in agony. Oliver was in such pain that he pleaded to be shot. Finally, his father, Brown, snapped, If you must die, die like a man. Tuesday morning, the 18th, dawned gray, raw, damp. And in the misty first light, Brown found himself not only surrounded by some 2,000 militiamen and townspeople, but now a 90-man detachment of U.S. Marines that had arrived during the night and were led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee. 26-year-old Lieutenant Jeb Stewart was sent to the fire engine house to demand surrender. Refused, Stewart signaled with his plumed hat, and responding, Lieutenant Israel Green and 12 men set upon the engine house's heavy doors with sledgehammers. Having no effect, Green ordered his men to grab a heavy ladder lying in the yard and use it as a battering ram. With a second blow, an opening was created, and Green was first to dart through. The Marine that followed, Private Luke 
Quinn took a bullet to his abdomen, a mortal wound, but more poured in behind him. While Brown's son-in-law, Dauphin Thompson, and Jeremiah Anderson were quickly bayoneted to death, Green advanced on a kneeling Brown, and a saber blow sent him reeling. With Brown down, it was over in less than three minutes. Of the 19, including Brown, who came into town, 17 would die. Ten from wounds received. Later, seven by execution. Brown, wounded, and those still alive were to stand trial. Meanwhile, the telegraph wires were alive with news of the raid, and that particularly troubled the secret six. With Brown's papers seized and names discovered, they panicked. Sanborn, Howe, and Stearns fled to Canada. Frederick Douglass, via Canada, escaped to England. Garrett Smith either feigned or suffered a nervous breakdown. Theodore Parker was out of the country in Florence, Italy, dying of tuberculosis. Only Thomas Higginson remained in the country, and he dared anyone to arrest him. Righteously indignant, he offered to lead a raid to rescue Brown and those surviving being held in nearby Charlestown. The state of Virginia made certain that legal propriety ruled the day, but after a four-day trial and only a 45-minute deliberation, Brown and his surviving men were found guilty of treason to the Commonwealth of Virginia and conspiring with slaves to commit treason and murder. Before the sentence was handed down on November the 2nd, Brown spoke. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say, let it be done. Quite honestly, he looked forward to being a martyr, and Judge Richard Parker gave him his wish, death by hanging. One month later, on the 2nd of December, 1859, while in his Charlestown jail, there was a constant stream of visitors, some curious, some sympathetic, some filled with hate. His wife was allowed to join him the day before his execution. On the 2nd of December, a mild Friday, he was taken from his cell, bade farewell to his men, and around 11 a.m. moved to the jail's porch. He wore a wrinkled black frock coat, black pantaloons, black vest, black slouch hat, open white shirt, white socks, and loose-fitting carpet slippers of predominating red. With arms pinioned to his side, he took a seat in the back of a furniture wagon, sitting atop his own coffin, which was of black walnut and enclosed in a box of poplar the same shape as the coffin. After a short ride, they approached a field of the southeastern edge of Charlestown, where some 1,000 patrolled the scene. Five hundred more were stationed at the jail and around town. The future Confederate General Stonewall, Thomas J. Jackson, was there in command of a detachment of VMI artillerymen. The future assassin John Wilkes Booth was there, dressed in a borrowed uniform from the Richmond Greys. Upon arrival, Brown climbed the steps with apparent cheerfulness shook hands with several, and then took his place over the trap door. The noose was arranged, and a white hood slipped over his head. Asked if he wished a signal, he said, It does not matter to me, as long as you will not keep me too long waiting. Ten minutes later, with the troops finally in position, Sheriff John Campbell walked down the steps and chopped away at the trap door's supports. Brown fell through about three feet. It took only a few minutes. No one cheered. No one spoke. The silence finally broken by Colonel J.T.L. Preston, 
who oversaw the proceedings. To the crowd he announced, So perish all such enemies of Virginia, all such enemies of the Union, all such foes of the human race. John Brown was buried in North Elba, New York. To some, he was regarded as a saint, a righteous martyr. To some, the devil on earth. To most, north and south, a fanatic to put distance between at the time. Sometime after the execution, a guard at the jail produced a note that Brown had written and given to him. It read, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry failed. He did not slay the beast slavery, but without question, he accelerated events that eventually, at great national cost, accomplished what he consecrated his life to do what he gave his life for, the end of slavery. His raid ensured a great whirlwind. Soldiers in blue would march off to war with his name on their lips. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. And poet-writer Herman Melville noted poetically how John Brown ensured it all. When later in a work entitled The Portent. Melville penned that John Brown was indeed the meteor of the war. Next time we gather, yet another event we've chosen from the month of April. Not only the month the war began, but also began to end. Indeed, the fourth month of the year served as the stage for several dramatic moments in the four-year-long struggle. And one, in particular, has been for far too long overshadowed by Lee and Grant at Appomattox and Lincoln's assassination. When next we meet, we'll tell the story of the Carolinas campaign as it rolled west across the Piedmont of North Carolina a series of events that led to a rustic homestead near a place called Durham Station, where Union Major General William T. Sherman and Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston met to talk of peace. I hope you'll be with us as we spin the stories that drew them to the Bennett Place and the end of Civil War in North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.